Section 8 of Myths and Legends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy LaFaro, New South Wales, Australia. Myths and Legends of Ancient Greece and Rome by E. M. Behrens. Section 8 Third Dynasty Olympian Divinities. Artemis. Artemis Diana. Artemis was worshipped by the Greeks under various appellations, to each of which belonged special characteristics. Thus she is known as the Akkadian, Ephesian, and Baronian Artemis, and also as Selene Artemis. And in order fully to comprehend the worship of this divinity, we must consider her under each aspect. Arcadian Artemis The Arcadian Artemis, the real Artemis of the Greeks, was the daughter of Zeus and Leto, and twin sister of Apollo. She was the goddess of hunting and chastity, and having obtained from her father permission to lead a life of celibacy, she ever remained a maiden divinity. Artemis is the feminine counterpart of her brother, the glorious god of light, and like him, though she deals out destruction and sudden death to men and animals, she is also able to alleviate suffering and cure diseases. Like Apollo, also, she is skilled in the use of the bow, but in a far more eminent degree, for in the character of Artemis, who devoted herself to the chase and passionate ardour, this becomes an all-distinguishing feature. Armed with her bow and quiver, and attended by her train of huntresses, who were nymphs of the woods and springs, she roamed over the mountains in pursuit of her favourite exercise, destroying in her course the wild animals of the forest. When the chase was ended, Artemis and her maidens loved to assemble in a shady grove, or on the banks of a favourite stream, where they joined in the merry song, or graceful dance, and made the hills resound with their joyous shouts. As the type of purity and chastity, Artemis was especially venerated by young maidens, who, before marrying, sacrificed their hair to her. She was also the patroness of those vowed to celibacy, and punished severely any infringement of their obligation. The huntress goddess is represented as being a head taller than her attendant nymphs, and always appears as a youthful and slender maiden. Her features are beautiful, but wanting in gentleness of expression. Her hair is gathered negligently into a knot at the back of her well-shaped head. And her figure, though somewhat masculine, is most graceful in its attitude and proportions. The short robe she wears leaves her limbs free for the exercise of her chase, her devotion to which is indicated by the quiver which is slung over her shoulder, and the bow which she bears in her hand. There are many famous statues of this divinity, but the most celebrated is that known as the Diana of Versailles, now in the Louvre, which forms a not unworthy companion to the Apollo Belvedere of the Vatican. In this statue, the goddess appears in the act of rescuing a hunted deer from its pursuers, on whom she is turning with angry mane. One hand is laid protectingly 
on the head of the stag, whilst with the other she draws an arrow from the quiver which hangs over her shoulder. Her attributes are the bow, quiver, and spear. The animals sacred to her are the hind, dog, bear, and wild boar. Artemis promptly resented any disregard or neglect of her worship. A remarkable instance of this is shown in the story of the Caledonian boar hunt, which is as follows. Aeneas, king of Caledon in Aetolia, had incurred the displeasure of Artemis by neglecting to include her in a general sacrifice to the gods which he had offered up, out of gratitude for a bountiful harvest. The goddess, enraged at this neglect, sent a wild boar of extraordinary size and prodigious strength, which destroyed the sprouting grain, laid waste the fields, and threatened the inhabitants with famine and death. At this juncture, Meleager, the brave son of Aeneas, returned from the Argonautic expedition, and finding his country ravaged by this dreadful scourge, entreated the assistance of all the celebrated heroes of the age to join him in hunting the ferocious monster. Among the most famous of those who responded to his call were Jason, Castor, Pollux, Idas, Lynceus, Peleus, Telamon, Admetus, Perithus, and Theseus. The brothers of Althea, wife of Aeneas, joined the hunters, and Meleager also enlisted into his service the fleet-footed huntress, Atlanta. The father of this maiden was Scenus, an Arcadian who, disappointed at the birth of a daughter when he had particularly desired a son, had exposed her on the Parthenian hill, where he left her to perish. Here she was nursed by a she-bear, and at last found by some hunters, who reared her and gave her the name of Atlanta. As the maiden grew up, she became an ardent lover of the chase, and was alike distinguished for her beauty and courage. Though often wooed, she led a life of strict celibacy, an oracle having predicted that inevitable misfortune awaited her, should she give herself in marriage to any of her numerous suitors. Many of the heroes objected to hunt in company with a maiden, but Meleager, who loved Atlanta, overcame their opposition, and the valiant band set out on their expedition. Atlanta was the first to wound the boar with her spear, but not before two of the heroes had met their death from his fierce tusks. After a long and desperate encounter, Meleager succeeded in killing the monster, and presented the head and hide to Atlanta as trophies of the victory. The uncles of Meleager, however, forcibly took the hide from the maiden, claiming their right to the spoil as next of kin, if Meleager resigned it. Artemis, whose anger was still unappeased, caused a violent quarrel to arise between uncles and nephew, and in the struggle which ensued, Meleager killed his mother's brothers, and then restored the hide to Atlanta. When Althea beheld the dead bodies of the slain heroes, her grief and anger knew no bounds. She swore to revenge the death of her brothers and her own son, and unfortunately for him, the instrument of vengeance lay ready to her hand. At the birth of Meleager, the Moiri, or Fates, 
entered the house of Aeneas, and pointing to a piece of wood then burning on the hearth, declared that as soon as it was consumed, the babe would surely die. On hearing this, Althea seized a brand, laid it up carefully in a chest, and henceforth preserved it as her most precious possession. But now, love for her son giving place to the resentment she felt against the murderer of her brothers, she threw the fatal brand into the devouring flames. As it consumed, the vigour of Meliager wasted away, and when it was reduced to ashes, he expired. Repenting too late the terrible effects of her rash deed, Althea, in remorse and despair, took away her own life. The news of the courage and the intrepidity displayed by Atlanta in the famous boar-hunt, being carried to the ears of her father, caused him to acknowledge his long-lost child. Urged by him to choose one of her numerous suitors, she consented to do so, but made it a condition that he alone, who could outstrip her in a race, should become her husband, whilst those she defeated should be put to death by her, with the lance which she bore in her hand. Thus many suitors had perished, for the maiden was unequalled for swiftness of foot. But at last a beautiful youth named Hippomenes, who had vainly endeavoured to win her love by his assiduous attentions in the chase, ventured to enter the fatal lists. Knowing that only by stratagem could he hope to be successful, he obtained, by the help of Aphrodite, three golden apples from the garden of the Hesperides, which he threw down at intervals during his course. Atlanta, secure of victory, stooped to pick up the tempting fruit, and in the meantime Hippomenes arrived at the goal. He became the husband of the lovely Atlanta, but forgot, in his newly found happiness, the gratitude which he owed to Aphrodite, and the goddess withdrew her favour from the pair. Not long after, the prediction which foretold misfortune to Atlanta, in the event of her marriage, was verified, for she and her husband, having strayed unsanctioned into a sacred grove of Zeus, were both transformed into lions. The trophies of the ever-memorable boar-hunt had been carried by Atlanta into Arcadia, and for many centuries the identical hide and enormous tusks of the Caledonian boar hung in the temple of Athene at Tegea. The tusks were afterwards conveyed to Rome, and shown there among other curiosities. A forcible instance of the manner in which Artemis resented any intrusion on her retirement is seen in the fate which befell the famous hunter Actaeon, who, happening one day to see Artemis and her attendants bathing, imprudently ventured to approach the spot. The goddess, incensed at his audacity, sprinkled him with water and transformed him into a stag, whereupon he was torn in pieces and devoured by his own dogs. Ephesian Artemis The Ephesian Artemis, known to us as Diana of the Ephesians, was a very ancient Asiatic divinity of Persian origin called Metra, whose worship the Greek colonists found already established when they first settled in Asia Minor, 
and whom they identified with their own Greek Artemis, though she really possessed but one single attribute in common with their home deity. Metra was a twofold divinity, and represented, in one phase of her character, all-pervading love. In the other, she was the light of heaven, and as Artemis, in her character as Selene, was the only Greek female divinity who represented celestial light. The Greek settlers, according to their custom of fusing foreign deities into their own, seized at once upon this point of resemblance, and decided that Metra should henceforth be regarded as identical with Artemis. In her character as the love which pervades all nature, and penetrates everywhere, they believed her also to be present in the mysterious realm of shades, where she exercised her benign sway, replacing, to a certain extent, that ancient divinity, Hecate, and partly usurping also the place of Persephone, as mistress of the lower world. Thus, they believed that it was she who permitted the spirits of the departed to revisit the earth, in order to communicate with those they loved, and to give them timely warning of coming evil. In fact, this great, mighty, and omnipresent power of love, as embodied in the Ephesian Artemis, was believed by the great thinkers of old to be the ruling spirit of the universe, and it was to her influence that all the mysterious and beneficent workings of nature were ascribed. There was a magnificent temple erected to this divinity at Ephesus, a city of Asia Minor, which was ranked among the seven wonders of the world, and was unequalled in beauty and grandeur. The interior of this edifice was adorned with statues and paintings, and contained 127 columns, 60 feet in height, each column having been placed there by a different king. The wealth deposited in this temple was enormous, and the goddess was here worshipped with particular awe and solemnity. In the interior of the edifice stood a statue of her, formed of ebony, with lions on her arms and turrets on her head, whilst a number of breasts indicated the fruitfulness of the earth and of nature. Tessaphon was the principal architect of this world-renowned structure, which, however, was not entirely completed till two hundred and twenty years after the foundation stone was laid. But the labour of centuries was destroyed in a single night, for a man called Herostratus, seized with the insane desire of making his name famous to all succeeding generations, set fire to it and completely destroyed it. So great was the indignation and sorrow of the Ephesians at this calamity, that they enacted a law, forbidding the incendiary's name to be mentioned, thereby, however, defeating their own object, for thus the name of Herostratus has been handed down to posterity, and will live as long as the memory of the famous temple of Ephesus. Broronian Artemis In ancient times, the country which we now call the Crimea was known by the name of the Torica Cursinesis, 
It was colonized by Greek settlers, who, finding that the Scythian inhabitants had a native divinity somewhat resembling their own Artemis, identified her with the huntress goddess of the mother country. The worship of this Taurian Artemis was attended with the most barbarous practices, for, in accordance with a law which she had enacted, all strangers, whether male or female, landing or shipwrecked on her shores, were sacrificed upon her altars. It is supposed that this decree was issued by the Taurian goddess of chastity, to protect the purity of her followers, by keeping them apart from foreign influences. The interesting story of Iphigenia, a priestess in the temple of Artemis at Taurus, forms the subject of one of Schiller's most beautiful plays. The circumstances occurred at the commencement of the Trojan War, and are as follows. The fleet, collected by the Greeks for the siege of Troy, had assembled at Aulis in Boeotia, and was about to set sail, when Agamemnon, the commander-in-chief, had the misfortune to kill accidentally a stag which was grazing in a grove, sacred to Artemis. The offended goddess sent continuous calms that delayed the departure of the fleet, and Calchas, the soothsayer, who had accompanied the expedition, declared that nothing less than the sacrifice of Agamemnon's favourite daughter, Iphigenia, would appease the wrath of the goddess. At these words the heroic heart of the brave leader sank within him, and he declared that, rather than consent to so fearful an alternative, he would give up his share of the expedition and return to Argos. In this dilemma, Odysseus and other great generals called a council to discuss the matter, and after much deliberation, it was decided that private feeling must yield to the welfare of the state. For a long time, the unhappy Agamemnon turned a deaf ear to their arguments, but at last they succeeded in persuading him that it was his duty to make the sacrifice. He accordingly dispatched a messenger to his wife, Clytemnestra, begging her to send Iphigenia to him, alleging as a pretext that the great hero Achilles desired to make her his wife. Rejoicing at the brilliant destiny which awaited her beautiful daughter, the fond mother at once obeyed the command, and sent her to Aulis. When the maiden arrived at her destination, and discovered to her horror the dreadful fate which awaited her, she threw herself in an agony of grief at her father's feet, and with sobs and tears entreated him to have mercy on her and to spare her young life. But alas, her doom was sealed, and her now repentant and heartbroken father was powerless to avert it. The unfortunate victim was bound to the altar, and already the fatal knife was raised to deal the death blow. When suddenly... Iphigenia disappeared from view, and in her place on the altar lay a beautiful deer ready to be sacrificed. It was Artemis herself, who, pitying the youth and beauty of her victim, caused her to be conveyed in a cloud to Torica, where she became one of her priestesses, and entrusted with the charge of her temple, a dignity, however, which necessitated the offering of those human sacrifices presented to Artemis. Many years passed away, 
during which time the long and wearisome siege of Troy had come to an end, and the brave Agamemnon had returned home to meet death at the hands of his wife, and Aegisthus. But his daughter Iphigenia was still an exile from her native country, and continued to perform the terrible duties which her office involved. She had long given up all hopes of ever being restored to her friends, when one day two Greek strangers landed on Torica's inhospitable shores. These were Orestes and Pylades, whose romantic attachment to each other has made their names synonymous for devoted, self-sacrificing friendship. Orestes was Iphigenia's brother, and Pylades her cousin, and their object in undertaking an expedition fraught with so much peril was to obtain the statue of the Taurian Artemis. Orestes, having incurred the anger of the Furies for avenging the murder of his father Agamemnon, was pursued by them wherever he went, until at last he was informed by the oracle of Delphi that, in order to pacify them, he must convey the image of the Taurian Artemis from Taurus to Attica, this he at once resolved to do, and accompanied by his faithful friend Pylades, who insisted on sharing the dangers of the undertaking, he set out for Torica. But the unfortunate youths had hardly stepped on shore before they were seized by the natives, who, as usual, conveyed them for sacrifice to the temple of Artemis. Iphigenia, discovering that they were Greeks, though unaware of their near relationship to herself, thought the opportunity a favourable one for sending tidings of her existence to her native country, and accordingly requested one of the strangers to be the bearer of a letter from her to her family. A magnanimous dispute now arose between the friends, and each besought the other to accept the precious privilege of life and freedom. Pylades, at length, overcome by the urgent entreaties of Orestes, agreed to be the bearer of the missive. But on looking more closely at the superscription, he observed to his intense surprise that it was addressed to Orestes. Hereupon an explanation followed. The brother and sister recognised each other, amid joyful tears and loving embraces, and assisted by her friends and kinsmen, Iphigenia escaped with them from a country where she had spent so many unhappy days, and witnessed so many scenes of horror and anguish. The fugitives, having contrived to obtain the image of the Taurian Artemis, carried it with them to Broron in Attica. This divinity was henceforth known as the Broronian Artemis, and the rites which had rendered her worship so infamous in Taurica were now introduced into Greece and human victims bled freely under the sacrificial knife, both in Athens and Sparta. The revolting practice of offering human sacrifices to her was continued until the time of Lycurgus, the great Spartan lawgiver, who put an end to it by substituting in its place one which was hardly less barbarous, namely the scourging of youths, who were whipped on the altars of the Baronian Artemis, in the most cruel manner. Sometimes, indeed, they expired under the lash, in which case their mothers, far from lamenting their fate, are said to have rejoiced, considering this an honourable death 
for their sons. Selene Artemis Here thereto we have seen Artemis only in the various phases of her terrestrial character. But just as her brother Apollo drew into himself by degrees the attributes of that more ancient divinity Helios, the sun-god, so, in like manner, she came to be identified in later times with Selene, the moon-goddess, in which character she is always represented as wearing on her forehead a glittering crescent, whilst a flowing veil, bespangled with stars, reaches to her feet, and a long robe completely envelops her. End of section 8